Alright, we're coming to the last three verses of Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many as were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which they had not been told, them shall they see. And that which they had not heard, shall they consider. Let me ask you a question. Are all mountains equal? Well, it depends what you mean by equal. Growing up in Northern Ireland, one of the highlights of our summer holidays was to visit the little coastal town of Newcastle, set amongst the mountains of Morn, and there we would climb up its highest peak, Sleeve Donard. We would climb up Sleeve Donard in the morning, and we would be back in Newcastle by the afternoon, and there we would feast ourselves on ice cream and fish and chips and such things before heading home. Now, that was how I spent my childhood. Years later, I've seen mountain ranges that make the mountains of Morn look like little hills. Little hills. That's how they seem. So small, seemingly insignificant in the grand scheme of things. If you compare the Morn Mountains to the Himalayas, you would even wonder to yourself whether they deserve to be in the same category or not. They might both be called mountains, but one towers mightily over the other. And that's what I thought of when I began to prepare this message. You see, there are some parts of the Bible that tower over other parts, that seem to be greater in substance and stature. We can think of some of the, I suppose, better known and well-known passages of God's Word. Genesis 1, for instance, Psalm 23, John chapter 3, or John 14, Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 13. These are standout chapters that we perhaps might list amongst our favorite parts of the Word of God. And that's certainly true when we come to Isaiah 53. And many people will refer to that chapter as perhaps the greatest chapter in the Old Testament because it contains such a clear prophecy concerning the events surrounding the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah would write these words some 700 years before the events of Calvary took place. And yet he seems to describe the death of our Savior in such minute detail that we cannot truly ascribe it to anything else than the direct work of God. Now there are at least nine occasions in which New Testament writers have directly quoted from Isaiah 53. And I know what you're thinking. Why are you talking about Isaiah 53 when you're reading from Isaiah 52. Let me just remind you that the text of our Bible is inspired by God, but the chapter divisions aren't. Okay? 
chapter divisions aren't. They were added centuries later to help us, the reader, find different passages more quickly, dividing it into chapters and verses. So the passage that we've read together, beginning at verse 13 of Isaiah 52, rightly belongs uh, with the beginning of chapter 53. And this whole section is referred to as the fourth servant song. Uh, That means that it's the fourth major passage in the second half of the book of Isaiah uh, describing uh, the coming of the suffering servant of the Lord. Now we know that servant of the Lord to be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so this fourth servant song focuses particularly upon his death and the innocence of the servant who offers himself up as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. Now this song has five stanzas within which we find three verses of our English Bible at a time. And so over the next couple of weeks we will come back and look at each of those stanzas and what they teach us about the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Now, this afternoon, what I intend to do is to look at the opening uh, verses of this song and to look at the exaltation of our Saviour. These verses provide an overview of the whole song and speaks of our Saviour's exaltation in spite of of the degrading death that he's about to suffer. So we see, first of all, beginning at verse 13, something of his unrivaled success. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. So the text begins by telling us that the Lord Jesus will act prudently or wisely. Meaning that in every situation he is going to perfectly fulfill the Father's will. He's going to do all the things that please his heavenly Father. And he will have uh, that knowledge that the things that he does brings great pleasure to the Lord God of heaven. That's why he was able to pronounce from heaven at our Saviour's baptism that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Why is he well pleased? Because he does all things well. Peering down the corridors of history, Isaiah looks upon those days of the earthly trial of our Lord and Saviour and tells us that in those events, He acted wisely and prudently in every situation. He did the things that pleased his Father. It was the wisdom of God that led the Lord Jesus Christ to the bloody sacrifice of the cross where he would be offered up as a sacrifice for his people. But let me tell you that what seemed to be wisdom to God seems like folly to you and I to see the sufferings of the Savior and somehow attribute them to his success doesn't make sense to us 
When we see the events surrounding his crucifixion, we wonder how this could ever work out for our good. Little did the world know, and much less did it understand, what was actually taking place that day. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 2, and the verse 8, he says, Which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Just let that sink in for a moment. Just let it settle in your minds. Had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Had they fully understood the repercussions of everything that was taking place. If they'd considered the matter fully and thought it through, they wouldn't have done what they did. See, that's why we have to have patience when we're dealing with those who do not know the Savior. Because we need to be reminded that in our Savior's day, the world didn't understand him. And he walked amongst them. And he taught them. And he performed miracles before them. And yet they didn't understand him. He came unto his own, John said, but his own received him not. And if they didn't understand them in that day, they understand them even less today. And that's why Paul goes on to write that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So we must have patience when we deal with those who currently and as yet do not know our Savior. Because sometimes they're going to say foolish things, and sometimes they're going to be rude or unkind. And we're going to be tempted to retaliate with unkind words of our own. But I can assure you that's almost always a bad idea. It's like condemning the blind man because he can't see the color green. But you see what the foolishness of God has produced? The exaltation of our Savior. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Now, there's a number of senses in which the, this verse comes true in far as prophecy is concerned. He shall be exalted. simply means that he shall be lifted on high. There's a sense in which our Savior was lifted on high when he was raised up from the earth upon the cross. In fact, he told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. But he wasn't talking about being lifted up in the thoughts of men or lifted up in the words of men. He's talking about being lifted up on the cross before men. And if I be lifted up, I'll draw them to me. In that sense, our Savior was exalted, lifted high. We might also think of his resurrection. Though he was crucified and put to death and laid in a borrowed tomb, that upon the third day he rose from the grave, and he was exalted, he was lifted up from death and brought back to life. And we could take it a step further, that following his resurrection and his time spent amongst his disciples, that there on the Mount of Olives, just on the outskirts of Jerusalem, there was a day when he was raised up from earth, back to heaven, 
where now he sits at the exalted right hand of God the Father, and there he ever lives to make intercession for his people. He has been exalted and extolled and lifted very high. That's why we refer to the Lord Jesus as the Lord of glory. You know why we can do that? Because God, by his Spirit, has revealed him to us. We didn't learn these things by ourselves. There's no room for boasting here. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we must confess that it's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's all of God and it's all of grace. So, If we can say today that we see and hear and understand this truth, please don't take any credit for that. Rather fall upon your knees and give God the praise that's worthy to his name and thank him for opening your eyes and your understanding and for rescuing you from that awful pit of despair and of turning your life around where it's no longer been wasted on self and sin but you're now seeking to live for the glory of his name. Thank God for giving you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand the truth. And as we ponder the cross, know that though the world sought to destroy him, that rather our Savior was exalted and extolled and lifted very high. So we see something of his exaltation in verse 13, but verse 14 brings us crashing back down to earth and speaks of his disfigurement. As many were astonished that his visage was so more, more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And our text invites us to consider Uh, This shocking disjunction between verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, our Savior is exalted to the highest place. Verse 14, we're told of the disfigurement that he underwent in his death. And we're thinking to ourselves, there must be some mistake here. How could this happen? How could this one who is exalted and extolled and very high be brought so low? Perhaps we haven't stopped and thought and appreciated of how the Lord Jesus Christ died in such terrible pain. We know that he was crucified. Do you know that we get our English word excruciating from that? Excruciating. Utmost pain. If you run the clock back from 3 p.m., In the afternoon, the moment of our Saviour's death, roll it back about 12 hours to about 3 o'clock in the the morning and review what happened to the Saviour as he moves through those hours. You'll discover that the Lord Jesus has just underwent 12 hours of torture. Arrested in the middle of the night, slapped and beaten, pushed around, spat upon, mocked and buffeted. Witnesses, they plant a crown of thorns and pull it down upon his brow with those 
sharp spikes piercing his scalp, watch as he's scourged, as they take that large strap of leather studded with bits of bone and stone and metal and lash it across his back. Each time those little pieces catching onto the skin and ripping it open. Watch as they beat him with the rod. We're told of the very hairs from his face being plucked out. And then beaten again. And then forced to carry the cross through the streets of Jerusalem. Take him to the place of the skull, Golgotha. And thrown down across that heavy beam. Only to have his hands driven through with nails and his feet and then to be lifted up into the air and hang there between heaven and earth, gasping for breath. If we had been there that day, we would have been repulsed at the sight and the sounds and the smell of his death by crucifixion. It was a ghastly way to die. It was invented by the, the Romans and it was intended to be brutal and bloody. They had mastered the art of killing their opponents slowly and in great pain. And that day the earth at Calvary was filled with the stench of death. It was everywhere. It was palpable. And the one that hung upon that middle cross Burly even looked human anymore. Many were astonished at thee. His visage, his appearance was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Such was the mistreatment that he underwent. He didn't even share the likeness of a man anymore. It was a brutal death. It was... Horrible, ghastly. People ask me sometimes, what about those little silver crosses that people like to wear? Or whatever else you might want to say about it, the cross of the Lord Jesus was not shiny, nor was it silver, nor was it clean. It was repulsive. It was horrific. The Romans liked it that way because it sent a message. This is what happens to troublemakers. You know, sometimes we, we sing the hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross. And perhaps with hindsight, when we consider what was accomplished there that day, the cross was indeed wondrous. But if we were there that day, we would see nothing but blood and pain and agony and torture and death. We see the disfigurement of the one who is to be exalted. But we are thankful that death was not the end. Though he was so brutally crucified by the hands of evil and wicked men... The Lord God had a plan and a purpose for it. Verse 15 tells us of the great victory that he won that day. So shall he sprinkle 
many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. There's victory in his death. In his death he shall sprinkle many nations. If you're familiar with the Old Testament picture of the sacrifice being brought to the tabernacle or to the temple, the priests would come and they would offer the sacrifice, the, the lamb, the goat, whatever it might be. They would shed its blood. They would catch that blood in a little basin and they would bring it in before the altar and they would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. The day of atonement, the blood was sprinkled both upon the people and upon the mercy seat. And it stood as a covenant between them and God that the blood of sacrifice would take away their sin. Now we know that the blood of bulls and goats and sheep can never take away our guilt. But there is a lamb, the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's described to us in the book of Revelation as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. His blood contains infinite value and can wash away our sin. We are told that he shall sprinkle many nations. His blood has purifying power. When we read of sprinkling many nations, it means in effect that his death has no national limits. The Lord Jesus died as a Jew, died upon a Roman cross, because he was and is the Son of God, his sacrifice will provide cleansing and purification for many nations. Not just Israel, not just for the Jewish people, not just for the Romans or the Greeks, but for every nation on the face of this earth. If I had time, I would take you to Revelation chapter 7 and the great scene that John witnessed there in heaven itself where he described an, an ocean of people, so vast in number that no man could count them, drawn out of every nation and kindred and people and tongue, saved by Christ. Out of every nation on the earth, you take a globe and spin it in your hands, and when it stops, put your finger, let it fall at random in any place on the globe, what nation did you land on? Malaysia? Bolivia? Ukraine? Mozambique? Belize? Tunisia? Latvia? Doesn't matter. Christ died that his purifying blood might be sprinkled upon many nations. Last week I received a report from CEF, that's Child Evangelism Fellowship. Uh, they seek to bring the message of the gospel to children uh, everywhere across this world, and they're making good work at that. They're reaching out to children all across the world, and one of their goals is to have an ongoing CEF work in every nation of the world. They're not quite there yet, but they're making progress. We've got other organizations like New Tribes Mission, 
that have similar lofty goals. Their desire is not to plant the gospel seed where others have labored before, but to go to new tribes where Christ's name has yet to be heard. It's part of their desire to fulfill the great commission that Christ gave his disciples to go therefore and teach all nations. These are lofty goals. I was also reading an article from Open Doors, if you're familiar with them. They report on the work of persecuted churches in different parts of the world. It may be no surprise to you, but North Korea is ranked number one as the most hostile place on earth with regards to the gospel. And they state that in this brutally hostile nation, Christians have no freedom to worship. North Korea's borders remain firmly shut to Christian workers. But you know, there are believers in South Korea that are not to be deterred. And they have launched at times what they call gospel balloons. The balloons rise up into the air and attached to them are little pieces of gospel literature, New Testaments and Bibles. And it is their prayer that as the balloons blow into North Korea, that the people who find them when they eventually land will have gospel literature that they'll be able to read and learn the gospel. Now we need to remember that those who find them are in a dangerous place because the authorities state that anyone who possesses a Bible or gospel literature will, if they don't lose their life, they'll find themselves in a readjustment camp, them and their families. We can pray that lands like North Korea might be opened up to the gospel. Why do we pray that way? Because the blood of Jesus Christ was sprinkled for many nations. And that certainly includes North Korea. It included the pagan Roman Empire in the first century and it extends right through to North Korea in the 21st century. So shall he sprinkle many nations. And then we're told that the king's shall shut their mouths. When I read that little aspect of the verse, I couldn't help but have my mind go back to Psalm 2. And there we're told, Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine a vain thing? And the kings of the earth have set themselves, and the rulers have taken counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. The kings and the princes of this earth, when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, are saying, as they have always said, we will not have this man to rule over us. That's why they stirred up the hearts of the people on the day when our Saviour stood before Pontius Pilate and told the people, Ask for Barabbas. Ask for Barabbas. And when Pilate asked you, What will I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? You call out, Crucify him. Crucify him. 
Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And if they could, the kings of the earth would overthrow God from his throne and crucify our Saviour afresh. But notice what's going to happen in the day of his appearing. The kings will shut their mouths because of him. I remember hearing Lady and Pasty preaching from this text. He says that Christ will say to the kings in that day, Shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. No more. You will shut their mouths. Their proud boasting is over. Their mocking tones will be silenced. And the great king of kings will be thrown before them. You see, though they put him to death on that cross of Calvary, though they laughed at him and mocked him and scorned him, that they didn't think that a true king could ever be born in a stable or come from some backwater village like Nazareth. And they were offended by him and they called him the friend of publicans and sinners. And they didn't mean that as a compliment, by the way. They hated him and rejected him and eventually crucified. The religious and the political leaders teamed up together to nail the Savior to the cross. And they thought to themselves, now we're done with him. But oh, their astonishment that on the third day he rose again. He wouldn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He rallied his disciples who had been dispersed following his crucifixion. And he gave them their marching orders to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And eventually he returned to the Father's right hand in heaven. And everywhere his disciples went, they carried the good news. He's alive. He's alive. He is risen from the dead. And they began in Jerusalem and spread into Judea and into Samaria and unto the uttermost ends of the earth and nothing could stop them. No persecution, no hatred, no beatings, threats didn't work. Nothing could silence them. You kill one and another one steps forward to take his place. And 2,000 years have come and gone and the flame of the gospel is still burning brightly. Not even a crazed tyrant in North Korea can stop Christians from sharing their faith. As I said, kill one and another takes their place. It's been well said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Has always been. The day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And if you think that the kings are shocked now, just wait until that day when they too are forced to bow and confess. This isn't just a word about coming judgment 
It's a word of God's intention to sprinkle many nations with the blood of Jesus Christ. When Paul was explaining his desire to go to nations where Christ was not yet known, he actually quoted verse 15 to justify his strategy. We read in Romans chapter 15 and verse 20, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. That's verse 15 of Isaiah 52. You see, what's the missionary's chief ambition? To build a church? To see souls saved? Those are noble ambitions, but our chief ambition is to make Christ known, to preach his gospel, to glorify his name. And in Paul's case, that meant a call to preach Christ where he was not yet known, which is why he preached throughout Asia Minor and then into Greece and finally into Rome. And his desire was to go on into Spain and further the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the same today. It ought to be our ambition to make Christ known wherever we are. That's why we have Bible translators that translate the scriptures into the various languages of the world. That's why we have pioneer missionaries that are taking the gospel into so-called closed countries. That's why Paul quotes from verse 15 of Isaiah 52, which is a prophecy of the coming Christ who would sprinkle many nations, cleansing them with his own blood. That's our desire, to make Christ known. That's why we labor and we pray and we preach that those who have never heard will come to that understanding of the gospel and bow their knee in repentance and faith and call upon the Lord while he's yet near. Let me just ask you a question just in closing. Where do you stand in reference to God's servant, the one that we call Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord. Do you rejoice in that he's been exalted on high, that he's upon the throne of the universe? Do you see beauty in that ghastly scene upon Golgotha's brow? Do you believe that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, is able to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Do you join with others in the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ so that those that are yet in darkness can be saved by God's grace? Do you do those things? When I was preparing this message, I came across a wonderful quote from Charles Spurgeon. I've modernized it slightly, but here's what he said. He imagined someone saying, I cannot come to Christ. My sins are too great. My past is too dirty. 
He will never take me. Here's what Spurgeon said. The past shall be blotted out. God shall be your reward. And as for the future, you chief of sinners, if now you will join the army of Christ by faith, you shall find that the future shall be strewn with the gold of God's grace and the silver of his temporal mercies. And you shall have enough and to spare from this day forth even until the end. And at the last you shall be gathered by the great arms of God. Is that not good news for guilty sinners? That our past sins can be blotted out. That our future sins can be cleansed away. That we will find each day filled with the gold and silver of God's grace and mercy. And that at the end, we will know his arms wrapped around us and to be gathered in. This is a message the whole world needs to hear. This is a message we dare not keep to ourselves. This is a message we should be sharing with those that are round about us. It's no wonder that the Bible calls it good news. If I could, I'd go back to that verse earlier and remind you of how beautiful are the feet of him that brings those glad tidings of good news. Go and bless the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ and come believing in the Son of God who died to save us. May the Lord bless these few words to our hearts this afternoon. For his own name's sake. Amen.